0: This is the last chapter of 1 John, and um, um, I'm, it may take today and Sunday, if the Lord doesn't return first, uh, to finish this whole thing up. But let's join our hearts together in prayer. Uh, and come before him as the unified body that we are. Fathers, we we approach your throne of grace today. Lord, we know that uh, that if we abide in you, even according to what John is going to say later in chapter five. That if we abide in you, that you hear us. And that as we abide in you, you hear our prayers. And we can know that we have uh, the requests that we have made. And of course, the operative word there, dear Lord, is that we abide. That means that we live in in your spirit that we do not walk according to our own imaginations. We do not depend upon human reason uh, to direct our path, but we delight ourselves in you, Lord. And as we delight ourselves in you, then the desires of your heart coincide with the desires of your heart. And therefore, dear Lord, when we pray, we are simply praying out of the life of Christ, who always prayed according to your will. So here we are uh, saying to you that you are the only reason for us living in this earth. You made us, Lord God. You made us for your pleasure. But sin came into the world, Lord, and men lost sight. Uh, and have been overcome in so many cases, overcome by the uh, deceitful working of the powers of the world uh, that work against us. But as we trust in you, there is no weapon that is formed against us that can prosper. And so we we take you at your word. Lord, this is our victory, even in our faith. So we bless your name. We love you, Lord. We long to see your face. But until that time comes, my prayer is that each of us will be found faithful, faithful in understanding the mystery of your will and the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Jesus that it lives in us uh, according to your mighty working power. Thank you, Lord. Bless these people. Each one of them come this morning uh, with uh, trials that they're facing in this world. They're of every kind uh, and type. However, you have promised that in Christ, No matter what to try, we are overcomers through Jesus Christ, who loves us. We thank you that he, even now, sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession for us according to the will of God. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone. And thank you that you are building for us an eternal abode, an eternal place where we uh, will occupy for eternity that location that is never outside of your shining light in our lives. Thank you, Father. Glorify yourself. May the word have free course. May each one here be blessed and edified uh, according to your unfathomable love for us. Thank you, Father, Where we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. And now we'll hear from Mark Engelhart.
1: How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all day. that he should give his only son to make a wretch his greater. How great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mother chosen one sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross. I sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed I hear my
0: Thank you, Mark, uh, for bringing us that word uh, that speaks the truth of the great work that Christ did, whereby each of us might be brought into his family, whereby he is not ashamed to call us the, his brethren. And so we'll start in First John, uh, chapter 5. Uh, I would just like to make a remark uh, that uh, something I saw yesterday uh, in the news on YouTube that impressed me. And that is that uh there is a in China there is a textbook that is being taught in uh, all of the Chinese schools when uh, the uh, when the students sign up for a class in government and Uh, religious affairs, there is a textbook and contained within it is a story. The story we are also familiar with of our Lord Jesus Christ as he came uh, into the presence of the, what is referred to as the adulterous woman. And the Chinese textbook says that Christ approached this woman uh, and waited until all of her accusers had left. And according to the textbook, then Christ himself stoned the woman until she died and while stoning her he said there are no righteous men who can judge you and i who judge you am a sinner Uh, this is the kind of of uh, heretical propaganda that is being taught uh, in Chinese schools, uh, which is simply an example of the monumental volume of heretical material that is being taught not only in our country but around the world, re- which totally denigrate the truth. Uh, of who Christ is and even to the point of lying about what he did. Um, And I thought I would pass that along to you. First John chapter five, verse one. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, just to help you with that, uh, when it says Jesus is the Christ, if you were a Jew, uh, what how you would understand that is Jesus is the Messiah. For the word Christ and the word Messiah are just uh, one is a transliteration of the other. And so the Jews talk about the Messiah, and we talk about the Christ, which means the same thing. And that Jesus is the Christ. uh, It's not like Christ was his last name. It is the description of who he is. Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that beget loveth him also that is begotten of him. And so what's being said here is that everyone uh, who loves Christ, or pardon me, who loves God also loves Christ. What you think about Christ ought always be the same uh, of what you think about God himself. If I were to turn you to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, you would read these words that Jesus Christ was the express image of God himself. And so to see one, and Christ himself said this in the Gospel of John, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And also in John, he said, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And... Uh, Of course, one of the greatest objections that the self-righteous Jews had towards Christ is his uh, claim that he and the Father were one. Not that they were the same person, but they were the same in all uh, attributes, Characteristics, that includes power and capacity to exert power. Um, There is no difference. The only um, caveat that we place on that truth is that when Christ became a man, he laid aside not his deity, But he laid aside the practice of his deity so that he could do all that he did, not out of his own power that was absolutely legitimate for him to do, but he laid that aside so that he could be who he is, not by the fact that he himself is God, but by the fact that he submitted himself, he humbled himself to his father and lived according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, my friends, the the takeaway for that is that Christ lived not according to his own will, but by the will of God that was made clear to him perfectly through the Holy Ghost. And consider that because that is how each of us have been called upon to live. And if Christ could live by the power of another and by the life of the Holy Ghost, the scripture says that whosoever is born of him ought to walk even as he walked. And I've heard so many people say that I can never walk like Christ because he was God. But That is where we need to understand that we walk even as Christ walked because we have the availability of the entire power of God given to us by the imparting of the Holy Spirit to not only live in us, but to live the life of Christ through us. And so there are so many professors of Christianity that believe that it is impossible to walk like Christ. No, with faith in what God has given, all things are possible. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Christ loved men, and as Christ loves us, so we love Christ. We are both in Christ, and Christ is in us. Verse
1: 2
0: of 1 John chapter 5 says, By this we know, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Now, I have given an awful lot of thought, particularly even in these last few weeks, regarding uh, the understanding that through Jesus Christ, we have been given many commandments. And even though we know that we are not saved by the keeping of God's commandments, we are saved by faith through grace. And the scripture says in Romans chapter 4 that he who worketh not that is who does not live according to legal standards but him that worketh not but simply believes that jesus christ has justified us who were ungodly that we have eternal life and so Commandments, um, let me just take a simple command, uh, and this is found in the Decalogue, that is, in the Ten Commandments that Moses gave us. Let me ask you, there is a commandment that says, I shall honor thy father and thy mother And according to this, thy days will be long in the earth. Do I depend upon the performance of that commandment that I might be saved? And the answer is no. I depend on Jesus Christ. I depend on the promise of God. But if I depend upon Jesus Christ and his life in me, then that commandment that I should honor my father and mother uh, uh, has a validity in my life, not that which gets me saved, but that is simply a natural result of Christ in me and me in Christ. And so if John said, I give, I give you a commandment that you should love the brethren, uh, I will not be saved because I love the brethren, but I will love the brethren because I am saved. Because salvation is wrought in each of us by the life of God himself given to us for the purpose of displacing the life of self, whereby God can then be in charge of the behavior of our every thought and the uh, behavior of our every step. And so, um, Those who love God and love the children of God keep his commandments. If you would like to find a key verse regarding this truth, I would direct you, and particularly those of you who take notes, I would direct you to... Romans chapter 8, verse 4. And I'll just read uh, two or three verses before that. All right. This is about what, what can we say will be the outworking of even the law in the life of those who believe. And here's what it says. For one thing, it started in verse two, that very familiar verse, for the law, and that is not the law of Moses, that is the law uh, regarding something that always happens. And so I always like to use the illustration of the law of gravity. And what always happens uh, in this earth, if I drop my pencil, on that is on this table and i let it fall from my hand it will drop to the floor it always happens it is a law and there is a spiritual law uh, and there are two of them mentioned in verse two of romans chapter eight the first one is well actually it's it's two truths made into one statement for the law of the spirit of life, that's one law. That's something that always happens. If you believe the word of God, and if you believe that you have died, buried, and, and raised from the dead to walk in newness of life, if you believe that the life of Christ is your life, which it is. It is the only life you have. Then what is true is that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. And so the law of the spirit of life is that if you trust in the provision of the Holy Ghost, uh, and in in the provision that you have been made a new creature in Jesus Christ, and you walk according to that faith, that's a matter of faith, then something will always happen. And that will be that you will overcome the negative and uh, damnable law of sin and death. And the law of sin and death is basically uh, behaving or, or approaching our relationship with God, not from the standpoint of the work of Christ, but from the standpoint of our own capability and our own ability to exert the human will to attempt to please God. In which case, every time we do that, Every time, we will fail and find ourselves in sin. And so we either are walking according to the law of the spirit of life, or we are walking according to the law of sin and death. And as Paul goes into that in verse 3 of Romans 8, he says, for what the law, and now he is talking about the law of Moses, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, that means you can't keep it. You don't decide that you're going to do uh, the Right things that God says we ought to be doing, uh, the law cannot help us with that. The law is there, it is absolutely as true and as valid as it ever was. However, it has no power to make us better. And so, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, that simply means that one of the works that Christ did on the cross uh, by the decree of the Father is that Christ became sin for us and the father as he looked on passed a judgment on sin in the flesh that means that he disempowered it therefore we are no longer in bondage to the sin of the flesh but we are fully capable in christ to walk according to the law of the spirit of life now i said all that to read verse 4 in romans chapter 8 which says that since christ uh, became sin for us and his father condemned sin in the flesh that is he disempowered it he passed judgment on it and he said Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. And that's in the next column in Romans 8. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? And what will be the result of that? Here it is. That the righteousness of the law, and that would be the Ten Commandments, that the righteousness of it, because you remember Christ said that the Ten Commandments were all perfect, and good. Paul said they were good. Uh, They just can't be that basis of our salvation. The basis of our salvation is one simple truth that we trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby he settled not only judicially the sin question for us, but he settled the question that Sin would not have power over us if we would simply put our faith in the life of Christ that lives in us. But if we do put our faith in Christ, then whatever righteousness and the beautiful righteousness that uh, is delineated or is declared in the law of Moses might be fulfilled in us. That means that if you walk according to the law of the spirit of life, you will, without even considering it, that you're doing it, you will walk in a way that satisfies the whole righteousness of God, even according to, to the Old Testament standards. And I hope, I've said that many times, I hope that everyone understands us, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who do what? Who do not walk after the flesh. That means we do not try to to become like God by strength of will, but that we, uh, by faith, simply depend upon the life of Christ to bring our behavior into uh, a place conforming to the righteousness of God. All right, back to 1 John chapter 5. And hopefully that will give us some idea of, uh, you know, the how-tos in regard to verse three, for this is the love of God. We keep his commandments. And that is not simply the commandments that Christ gave, and he gave us many. Um, but that includes all of the statements regarding righteousness that are made in all of the scriptures, um, and then uh, he says, "Whosoever is born of God." Um, oh, sorry, I just I just turned to the wrong place. Um, what he said is that the righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us. So my friends, we know that on the at the time of the great white throne judgment, that's one of the last things that you will read about in the book of Revelation, that the books of the law are going to be open. The book of life is going to be open, and we, of course, uh, through the work of Jesus Christ, are going to be justified through our faith in His blood regarding every kind of commandment that God has ever given. Those of us that trust, nevertheless, those who are not, whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be judged according to the standards that would include the law of Moses and other standards, the law of love, uh, that uh, those people who are not under the blood of Christ, those who are not born again, those who do not have their sins forgiven, those who are not declared by God to be righteous because they are justified, that means to be made right before God's eyes through Christ, that all of the people who are not who do not belong to God in that way, then the books of the law will be opened and they will do what they do. And there's some of you that if I asked for a raise of hands, would be, and I said, what is it? What is the purpose of the law? And those, many of you ought to be able to raise your hands and say, the purpose of the law is not to make men better. But the purpose of the law is to make sin exceedingly sinful. In other words, the purpose of the law, uh, rather than helping anyone keep it, the purpose of the law is to be used in, in uh, illuminating how evil and how bad and how dark and damnable is is the acts of sin that God has uh, so uh, so carefully written throughout Scripture. Isn't it wonderful that you you and I don't have to carry a book of rules in our back pocket because we walk by the light of the one who is perfectly righteous, who is Jesus Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, and so this is the love of God. This is verse three in 1 John chapter five. For the love of God that we keep, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and his commandments are not grievous. In other words, we don't look at those. and say, oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I've got to uh, uh, make sure I don't hate someone. Oh, I've got to make sure that I'm not jealous. Or I've got to make sure that I'm not bitter. That is... That is not what we have to do. We simply have to abide in Christ. And as I have told you in past sessions in First John, that John is approaching from chapter two to the end. What does it look like? What, is, uh, what are the characteristics of those who abide in in christ and we must take it from that standpoint or we will not understand what john is doing that brings us to verse four uh, which says for whatsoever and i think it's probably be whosoever whatsoever is born of god overcometh the world this is a Flat out statement, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, the first thing you have to understand here is that the what the influence of the world is your enemy. The the influence of the world is the enemy of mothers and fathers, husbands and wives children and grandchildren, the world is a powerful uh, uh, body of desires that is continually pulling against our walk of faith. I would advise anyone who hasn't done it to go back to the book of Matthew and find out immediately what was the nature of the three temptations that Satan presented Christ with. For he presented him first with the temptation apart from the will of God to make stones into bread and therefore satisfy his physical desires. Christ sidestepped Satan's temptation by quoting the scripture that says, man shall not live by bread alone. But don't forget the second part. But by every word, that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ. And then Satan uh, tried to get Christ, by quoting scripture, Satan tried to get Christ to be presumptuous according to the scripture that said that, uh, that Christ, would never have a bone broken and that any fall uh you know like from a ledge or whatever would not kill him and therefore he tempted christ to throw himself off that mountain just to prove uh who he was and the truth of the scripture well christ was not taken in by that temptation. And so he answered Satan by saying that uh, thou shalt not presume on the promises of God. Uh, I think he said that in just a little bit different way. Uh but that was the distant. And then there was one final temptation. When Christ was brought by Satan to the pinnacle of uh, the highest place in Jerusalem, where he could see, and I think uh, Satan made it a particularly clear day, where Christ could see all of the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan said, if you'll fall down and worship me, then all of these kingdoms I will give to you. And all you have to do is bow your knee to me. That was a powerful temptation because it was Christ's destiny to become king of all the world. But Christ understood that this was not in God's time at that time. And he he knew that anything that came out of the mouth of the tempter was but a way to deceive and to destroy. And so Christ answered and said, It is written that thou shalt worship only the Lord thy God. And from that point forward, Satan left him, uh, having tempted him in all the ways that you and I can be tempted. And and the scripture tells us that he was tempted in every point, just like you and I. And this verse, chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 4, this verse says, Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. What is the world doing? It is calling to you. Earlier in 1 John, John, uh, John very specifically told us, don't love the world. And if you do love the world, and I'll just paraphrase it, I can quote it, you probably get tired of hearing me say it. Uh, If you do love the world, that very love that you have for the world will destroy your relationship with God. And so um, Alice and I... uh, came upon uh, because of the wording of verse 4, which says, uh, whosoever is born of God overcomes the world, and the victory that overcomes the world is our faith, then Alice discovered in the scriptures a progression of, of what happens to people, Christians, or people who profess to be Christians, how they are subtly and deceitfully brought into the world, to loving the world. And here's what Alice found. She found that the first thing that happens that we think is innocent is that we uh, cultivate a friendship with the world. And so we find a scripture in James 4.4. 4. Those of you who take notes might want to write these references down. Friendship with the world, James 4.4. 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, Know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. That means it's the enemy of God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy, is the enemy of God. Strong words. Well, what's the next step? step in the progression to being overcome by the world, which is the end, or conformed to the world, which is the end of this, uh, this series of missteps that brings us to a bad end. And number two regarding that is to become spotted by the world. First, we become friendly with the world, Then we become spotted by the world or contaminated. And we read in James 1.27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted by the world. Step three, loving the world. And for this, there are a number of scriptures. Uh, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which I just quoted a minute ago. So I won't repeat it. That is love not the world. Neither the things are in the world. And then uh, 1 John uh, chapter 16, 02. Oh, I see what Alice did. She put all the verses right here. So that's 1 John 2 15 through 17. Uh, and uh, the middle of it, which I'll read and then not go ahead on that one. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, every one of those was characterized in the three temptations that satan brought before christ that is the lust of the flesh that would be to make stones bread the lust of the eyes uh, and that would be uh, to become uh, in charge of the whole world make the world your oyster and then the pride of life which would be the the pride that Christ would have exercised if he had thrown himself off of that mountain. He would not have been doing it according to the will of God, but basically to pridefully prove a point. And all of those things are not of the Father, but of the world. And then finally, and the last step from friendship with the world, being spotted by the world, loving the world, and then the last um, fatal step is to be conformed to the world. And so there is a process. Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that brings us then to verse 5 of 1 John chapter 5. Who is he? that overcomes the world but he that believeth that jesus is the son of god you know my friends i have told you so many times that um, a religious leader once told me that the things that i teach are too hard and when i look at verse five i come to the opposite conclusion who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth. it doesn't say he that overcometh the world is he who can set his will to do those things that he believes god would approve of Uh, he that overcomes the world uh, by power of his own conviction and by a commitment that is made according to the human mind, that he overcomes the world by simply bearing down and saying, these things I will do, and these are the things I won't do, and therefore, I can live up to God's standard simply out of the strength of my will. If you want to know about that, you go to Romans chapter 7, and you find out there what Paul found out, that every time he tried to exert his will in order to please God, that he failed. And finally, in the end, Paul said, yes, the will is present with me and it is present with every one of us that are hearing this message. We can exert our will. Many times I have talked about the terrible pitfalls for a Christian to be willful. it is not my will. That is important. What is important is the will of God. And the will of God can, I cannot as a human being by the strength of my intellectual uh, endurance, I cannot by strength of will, it is impossible to fulfill the, the very will of God. It is impossible to please God. It is impossible to, to walk as Christ walked just because you decide that you're just going to bear down, you're going to commit yourself to God to do those things that you believe are his will. And so, verse 5 of 1 John chapter 5 gives us the only requisite that allows us to be an overcomer of the world. And he says it is this, who is he that overcome the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And now John shifts gears just a little bit and uh, makes a statement that uh, I uh, believe that in the wisdom of the one who led uh, John to write these words, that these statements are exactly where they are and say exactly what they should say, and here they are, verse 6. When he talks about Jesus is the Son of God in verse 5, then he ties on to that and says, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is The spirit that bears witness because the spirit is true. Now, there are a number of theologians who have uh, given their thoughts as to what this verse means. Uh, I simply come to the conclusion that when Christ was crucified on that cross and the Roman soldier Uh, going around to break the legs of those who were being crucified, came to Christ and saw and believed that he had already given up the ghost. He did not break his legs, fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament, which said that not one bone of his body would be broken. The, the will of God was working in every detail as that which was predicted and that which was fulfilled. And so what did the Roman soldier do? He took his spear and he shoved it into the side of the Lord Jesus Christ, even to pierce his, uh, uh, all of his vital organs and, and into his heart. And what came out was water and blood. And the one who did that and then saw the healing that those elements brought said, Surely, surely this man is the son of God. And we sang a song, you and I you know it's my favorite out of rock of ages let the water and the blood from his ribbon side which flowed, be for sin the double cure bringing cleansing, and forgiveness. Verse 7 says, and there is some disagreement among scholars that possibly verse 7 was uh, inserted in the King James Bible. Nevertheless, I find no problem with what it says. Uh, I will leave that argument to others. For there are three that bear record in heaven. And this would be uh, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. I do not see how anyone could disagree with that. For in heaven, there is the Father, there is the Word, and there is the Holy Ghost. Remember that Particularly, we think of the Father, the Father God and the Holy Ghost as being omnipresent. Um, I must tell you that the omnipresence of the person of Jesus Christ, uh, who forever will be a man, uh, is that which he, uh, that, that which he, Uh, can call his own due to his uh, connection with the Holy Ghost. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And so basically only the spirit has been added there to what verse six said about the water and the blood. Uh, actually, and it also says, and it is the Spirit that bears witness. And so this is something that has simply been said before in another way. Now, as we get to verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Now, this must be taken not verse by verse, but as we must understand the meaning of this entire passage. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. Now what John is doing here is he is beginning to sum up his purpose for writing this entire epistle. And so he has been giving us, he has been giving us many, uh, many points whereby we can visualize the witness of God regarding that which constitutes the life of one who is abiding in Christ. And this is the witness that he has testified of his son. That would be the father. He that believeth on the son has this witness in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave his son. A couple points that I will make here. The first point is that we as human beings, when we listen to a man or one who is by the Spirit expounding the word of God, You know we can look at that man and we can say well he's just a man and we can take that message Uh, we can tear it apart we might find something wrong with it or we may find that the message itself is distasteful we may not find that it is heretical, according to the rest, of scripture, but we may find that it is something that calls upon us to uh, change our way of life in a way that is we find objectionable uh But what we are talking about here is not uh, the witness of a man. What we have is the witness of God. And the second thing I wanted to say is that if you will go to Romans chapter 8, you will find that uh, it is the Holy Spirit himself who witnesses to our spirit that we are sons of God and so as some of you will remember I asked an entire class one night each one individually went around the room in a circle we sat in a circle And I said, I'd like for each one of you to tell me how you know that you are saved. And some said, uh, I found this particularly to come from men. And they would say, I know I am a son of God. I know I've been born again. Because the word says that if I would believe then I would be saved, and that's absolutely true. But you know what I noticed in in the women that answered that question, for they did not answer like the men for the most part. That the word of God says, if I do this, then I'll be saved. They said, I know I am saved because it has been insured and it has been uh, absolutely joined, the truth of my salvation has been joined in my very being inwardly. That is that the Spirit of God testified to them And though others could not see it or hear it, they knew because God had made this clear in the inner man, they knew that they had eternal life. And that's what this passage basically says. He that believeth on his son has this witness where? In himself. And then... The opposite is spoken, as it often is, He that believeth not that God hath then uh, pardon me, he that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave unto his son. And so in this case, we find that the primary witness in verse 10 is the witness that we have in our own hearts. The confidence. When I I approach a person and I say, are you absolutely sure beyond any shadow of a doubt that if you die today, the next moment you're going to be in heaven with Christ? Um, And then they begin to look external proofs that they do have eternal life, I am troubled because the most powerful witness that we have, that we belong to Christ, we have it because we know it. We know it because God has made that integral with our very being as a new creature in Christ. And there you have it. Uh, I tell you, it is a blessed thing to know that my hope, which is a sure hope of eternal life, does not rest upon external, in, entirely upon external uh, influences or inputs, my primary understanding and and absolute confidence uh, is that that Paul stated in the early part of 2 Timothy. When he said, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to do that which I committed unto him. Notice he did not say, I know I am saved because I have made a commitment to do the will of God. I know I am saved because I know that God has committed himself to save me. And that is a marvelous blessing to carry with us all of our life. I will finish with this. For the words of Paul were that he who has this hope within him purifies himself even as he is pure. And so when we know that we have eternal life, because God has testified that truth in our heart, then we know also that the one who began a good work in us will not cease to perform until the coming of Jesus Christ himself. My hope rests not in my capacity to perform for God my hope rests in God's capacity to perform on my account and that he proved on the cross of Jesus Christ that he proved by bringing to each of us who know him that inner witness that he proved by carrying us through every failure, every temptation, and every failure that we have experienced along the way. And the testimony of Christ every time the enemy came and accused us, the testimony of Christ is that you are mine. And I am the author and the finisher of your faith. My hope rests in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Let us pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this marvelous gift. For it is unsearchable It is a gift that so many believe is not a gift at all. So many believe that this is something we work for and achieve. But we do not achieve salvation. It was wrought for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. And it was packaged in an eternal plan by the decree of God well before, Lord, eternally before the foundations of the world, whereby even then you knew our names. Salvation is of the Lord. In every way. And we enter into it, Lord, simply because we believe. And that belief is the answer to the knowledge that in the combat and the the battle of enduring through the darkness of this world, that the battle has already been fought and that the battle has already been won because God has gone before us. Thank you, Lord, for so great a salvation. Glorify yourself, therefore, my Father, Glorify yourself through the sun by the working of your Holy Ghost that when all things are done, every thinking being will look in regard to the perfection of your precious accomplishments. And they will give glory to you. And that also today we enter into. We give you glory. We lift you up. We worship your holy name. We count you, Lord God as that which we desire and we forsake all others, that we might be found faithful, even unto death. Blessed be your goodness and glory. Meet each one within the sound of my voice
1: this morning.
0: And as the gospel goes out around the world today, from those who teach it rightly, may you continue to build your church. And may you speedily bring forth that that day when we indeed will have the meeting. In the air, for that is our blessing, and that is such great consolation to what we endure, as this world is contrary. But we would say, with Paul in closing, "I am crucified to this world." And this world is crucified to me. Thank you, Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.